Would you pray with me? Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, for the next two Sundays, I'm going to be preaching on the book of Exodus, which if you're reading along in our Bible reading plan, you're like halfway through it. Um, so I'm playing catch up here. Uh, and, and two weeks is not a whole lot of time to cover that whole book, but, but I'm going to do the best I can. It just means for the next two Sundays, I'm covering a, a lot of material. Uh, but this really is a, a hugely important book for us to talk about. And this is one of those times, I think, where the relevance of the Old Testament for Christians becomes very, very clear. Um, Exodus is probably still today, for most Jewish people, um, one of the most important texts in the Scriptures because this, this story forms the core of Jewish identity, that they are the people who God freed from slavery, and led through the wilderness. It's a core part of what it means to be Jewish. This, this happens, um, as best we can tell, sometime around 1200 B.C., which means Jewish people have been celebrating the Passover and reminding themselves of this event for over 3,000 years. Uh, it, it's absolutely incredible. And, and it because it is a core part of, of how Jewish people understand who they are and who God is, it's therefore a core part of how Jesus understood who he was and who God is and how Paul understood who he was and who God is, how all the apostles understood uh, who they were and who God is because they were all Jewish. So this, this forms how they understand the God they worship. And therefore, it forms how we're supposed to understand the God we worship. And, and on top of all of this, Jesus deliberately goes to Jerusalem during the Passover to be crucified at that time. I mean, he picks the time when he is going to go for his final confrontation. He knows when he goes to Jerusalem during the Passover that this is it. I mean, he says it plainly in the Gospels. I'm going to go there and I'm going to die. He picks the Passover so that... His crucifixion, death, and resurrection will always be interpreted in light of the Passover. So for us to really fully understand what God is doing on the cross and for us to fully understand what we mean when we talk about Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we have to understand uh, what's going on in Exodus. But as I said, there's a lot of material in Exodus, so... so I'm going to try and do the best I can over the next two weeks to, to cover it. If you miss things on Sunday, I mean, you can always come to my Bible study on Wednesday night at 6 p.m. right up here uh, in the room, because uh, I'll go into a bit more detail on what's going on in Exodus. But uh, today, I, I'm, I'm going to focus on sort of the first half of the book. And I'm going to talk about Moses for a bit, and then about the Passover, and sort of the connection there, and, and what Christians can take away from it all. So we start in, in, Mo, in Exodus chapter 3 right in the first verse of the chapter. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. 
There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And, and this right here, by the way, is a deliberate callback into Genesis when Adam and Eve are expelled from the holy ground. And so there's this sense of a circular thing happening where God is now beginning to undo the things which were done uh, in the fall. Then in verse 6, then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are crushing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Now I've got to stop right here because I, I think Moses is one of the most unintentionally funny characters in the Bible. Um, and, and this story is kind of the beginning of it because he's going to come up with every possible excuse to not do what God says. And this first one I think is great. Right? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Right? Moses, you're the guy who grew up in Pharaoh's house. Right? His daughter found you as a baby. You were raised in the court of Pharaoh. The Pharaoh who's reigning now is either his grandfather, his stepfather, or his brother. Right? It's not clear which one of those men is Pharaoh by this time, but either it doesn't matter. One of them is still someone who knew him as a baby, watched him grow up. He was raised in that court. He knows all their customs. He knows them by name. Who else is God going to get to go and let them go free? I mean, come on, Moses. So in verse 12, And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain which is not that helpful because he's saying, you can trust me, but I'm not going to show you a sign that you can trust me until you've done it. Uh, go do it first, and then I promise I'll show you something cool. So in verse 13, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Now, Moses is living in a polytheistic world. People believe there's more than one God. He grew up in Egypt where there's more than one God. Um, so he's literally asking, which God is it who's talking to me? And you know, the Old Testament doesn't, not in the book of Exodus or in the book of Genesis, or really even until you get into like the books of Samuel and Kings, when the kingdom is forming, the Old Testament actually doesn't assume until then that, that the God of Israel is the only God who exists. God corrects that later on, but right now, they seem to just think he's like the biggest, baddest God. Um, right? he's, he's the God that can beat all the other gods up. Right? My God's stronger than your God. 
And I don't know why God doesn't correct that early on, but he, he does wait for a while to actually correct that idea. So for now, Moses is trying to figure out, well, which God is it who's talking to me out of this bush? And so in verse 14, God says, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And in English, this is nonsense, right? Uh, it's not helpful. Um, in Hebrew, it's really interesting. It's, it's this really interesting wordplay because the, the Hebrew word that gets used for God's name throughout the rest of the Old Testament gets translated as Lord in English, but in Hebrew, it's Yahweh. And, and what it literally means is he causes to be. It's a third-person word that describes God's relationship to everything else. He causes to be. So the wordplay in Hebrew is that God has taken this third-person thing that describes God's relationship to everything else and made it a first-person word about himself. And it would have sounded similar. And it's just one of those things that doesn't translate well into English, so you have to rely on someone who has the time to Google it like me. Uh, so I am who I am, right? It's, it's flipping Yahweh on its head, but it is very clearly a Hebrew reader would have understood right off the bat okay, this is God taking his name and using it as God only can use it. So in verse 15, God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you, and I have seen what was done to you in Egypt. I'm sorry, Javi, I'm doing it again. I, I'm reading beyond what I gave them to read, but you need to hear it for what I'm going to say next. Um, so just listen closely. It's not on the screen now. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. This part's important, because when you skip ahead to chapter 4, in the first verse, Moses says, what if they don't believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? Moses, he just said, the elders of Israel will listen to you. And Moses is first thing, well, what if they don't? Right? You can sort of imagine God just like rubbing his temples and going, oh my gosh, Moses. <laughs> listen. Right? Then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it, uh, which I think is a really funny mental image, right? He's <laughs> running away from his staff. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become white as snow. Now put it back in your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they don't believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Now, those of you who've, who've been following along with the reading plan and you've read through all this, you'll notice he never has to perform these signs for the elders of Israel because God was right. They listened to him. Right off the bat, the Israelites say, okay, sure, we believe you. 
Right? There's no question there, but he does perform all these signs in front of the Egyptians. And there's a lot of symbolism here. So there's this, first the, the staff turns into a snake and back in this is kind of symbolic of God's superiority over the gods of Egypt. And then there's the leper's hand, which is communicating that, that God has the power to instantly create and cure these plagues, which is foreshadowing what he's about to have to do to Egypt. And then there's the, the water from the Nile, which turns into blood. And you'll recall, right at the beginning of Exodus, God, or Pharaoh has all the, the male Hebrew babies tossed into the Nile. And so this sign of, of the water from the Nile being turned into blood is really a powerful symbol of God's judgment on that act of, of murderous infanticide and this horrible thing that has been done. It's this very tangible, clear sign of God's judgment on that act. So he's got all these miraculous signs that have been performed, incredible stuff. And then in verse 10, Moses says to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant five minutes ago. Right? Um, <laughs> I'm slow with speech and tongue. Right? People assume this means he has some kind of speech impediment like a stutter. But, but right here he's got all these miraculous things going on. Well, but God, I'm not a good speaker. You're really sure you want me to do this? I'm not the best. So God says in verse 11, The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. You can hear God getting more exasperated. Moses, just go. How many times do I have to tell you? And then my favorite one. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. <laughs> no excuses anymore. Just, I, I don't want to do it. Just send someone else. Just, just, I'm done. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, What about your brother, Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you, and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand, so that you can perform the signs with it. I love it. Moses, you're not getting out of this, right? You don't want to do it? Fine. Here's your brother. He can do all the talking, but you are still going. You know, every other time in the Bible when it talks about God's anger burning against somebody, uh, something bad usually happens right afterwards. I think it's interesting that this time, actually, right, God's anger burns against him, and he says, okay, fine. Here's your brother. He talks well. People like him. Take him with you. And there is this sense that, yes, God is frustrated with Moses. But he's not going to let Moses get out of it. And he seems to be at least willing to understand Moses' fear and hesitation. I mean, he is being asked to do a, a lot. And, you know... Sure, God could have snapped his fingers and set the Israelites free, right? He could have just made them disappear in Egypt and appear in the promised land. 
But if you think back to, to the beginning of Genesis when he puts Adam and Eve in the garden and makes them in his image and gives them this authority as his image bearers in the world, right? they, are, they are there for the purpose of extending God's reign on earth. Right? God's authority in the world is mediated through them, and they have that, that authority from God. There's, there's a real sense of that. And, and what we take away from this is, for some reason, God likes to work through cooperative human agents in the world. He prefers not to just impose his will on the world. He prefers not to just do things that are inexplicable and miraculous. He likes to work with us and to empower us and to strengthen us. And so he sees in Moses. And, and you know, there's this saying, right, maybe you've heard it, right? God doesn't uh, call the qualified, he qualifies the called. And I think oftentimes people think that means God might call, call you to do something you're terrible at, but he'll make you do it well anyway. That's not really what it means, right? There's a reason I'm not an accountant, and no, no God's not going to make me suddenly good at math to be an accountant. I think what it often means is God sees things in you that you don't see, and he knows how to bring them out. And so he sees in Moses the potential that Moses cannot see. So Moses certainly thinks he's unqualified, even though he's the only Hebrew who was in the court of Pharaoh and knows the ins and outs of it and, and, and has the, the relationship status to actually approach Pharaoh one-on-one. He still doesn't think he's qualified, and God sees something in him that Moses doesn't see. And what you'll see over the course of the book of Exodus and, and then Numbers and then Deuteronomy is that actually Moses grows into a very good leader. And he grows in his confidence, in his leadership ability, and he grows in, in his faith, and, and he actually becomes exactly the leader God knew he could be in the beginning. Um, but God kind of has to drag him kicking and screaming some of the ways, which is true for all of us. And, and Moses, right here, is, is going to be contrasted with Pharaoh. Both Moses and Pharaoh uh, are, are resisting what God wants them to do, Right? I mean, he comes to them both with a clear thing, do this for me, and, and both of them push back against God. And the way that Moses does it, it also, just like the rest of the narrative, sort of becomes actually a core part of the Jewish identity and faith in that he's willing to push against God and to, to wrestle with that and to push back and, and to say, I don't want to do this, why are you making me do this? And, and there is a greater sense within Judaism than there is in Christianity that it's okay to do that with God and to say no and to push back and to, and to allow yourself to wrestle with what he's telling you to do. Uh, and I think we probably ought to try and reclaim that somewhat. Because Moses, Moses and God sometimes bicker like an old married couple in the Bible. Um, right? I mean, they, they go back and forth a lot. Uh, but God calls Moses his friend. Um, so, so there is something in that. But, but you see, when God tells Moses to do something and he's resistant, Moses actually isn't opposed to what God wants to do. He just doesn't want to be the one who does it. And some of that is, he, he's, at this point, he's, he's humble to a fault, right? He actually doesn't even believe in himself to do the work he's being called to do. He's afraid. With Pharaoh, it's a bit different. Right? Pharaoh is resisting God, but, but actually, that's because Pharaoh, like all the Egyptian kings, believed he was a god. And so from, from Pharaoh's point of view, this is a cosmic showdown, God versus God. So he is not just opposed to how God wants to accomplish his work, he is opposed to the work God is going to do. 
And so whereas Moses can eventually be, be brought alongside in God's plans and God can work with him, and God's anger burns against Moses, but God knows it's okay, I can get him to do what I want, he'll, he'll go along with it. When God's anger burns against Pharaoh, the, the results are very different because of the difference in character. And you'll notice when, when you read through those plague stories, I don't know if you picked up on this, but actually the first few plagues that happen, Pharaoh hardens his own heart first, right? It's not until several plagues in that it switches and says, now God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And the sense is that Pharaoh's evil has reached a point of no return. He has actually hardened his heart to such an extent that now the only way God can get his message across is through drastic measures. So there is this contrast that Moses is resistant but ultimately willing to go along with what God is going to do. Pharaoh, not so much. And so then we come to the Passover, which is in Exodus chapter 12. And I'm only going to read a handful of verses here, but I'll start in verse 12. On that same night... I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And then skipping ahead to verse 29. At midnight... The Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go Worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go. And also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise, they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people, and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. So the final plague happens. And God did indeed have to do something drastic to get the point across. And of course, he never lets the Israelites forget it, right? They celebrate the Passover every year. All their firstborn are consecrated to God. They have to go offer a, a sacrifice to redeem their own firstborn each time they have a, a firstborn child as a reminder that they were uh, bought with a price, right? But so much of this uh, gets, gets swept up in the Christian tradition as well. And the story of Exodus matters for us. You know, even our baptisms are rooted in a Jewish practice that was meant originally to recall uh, the crossing of the Red Sea. So a lot of this story is, is meant to be part of our story as well. And like I said, Jesus deliberately chooses the Passover as the time when he will be crucified and killed so that he will be understood as, as the new Passover lamb. 
And this gives us some, some important clues as to what's actually happening on the cross that often get overlooked because you'll notice nowhere, nowhere in the story of the Passover and nowhere in the Gospels actually does it say that the lamb is being punished for the sins of the people, right? It's a freely offered sacrifice so God passes over the people. A bit of a different thing. That our sins are simply passed over and forgotten. That the Lord will, will overlook them. And there is this, this sense because in, in the ancient world, blood is associated with, with life, with the soul, the spirit. The very essence of, of your life is your blood. And so all throughout the Old Testament, right, you use the blood of the animals to purify yourself so you can enter into the presence of God in the temple. And the animals are not sacrificed on the altar in the temple. They're sacrificed outside the blood is brought in. Again, this is, the idea is you are being set free so you can go and be in God's presence. Because what happens to the Israelites? They leave Egypt, and then they're led forth through the desert. God appears to them in this pillar of cloud and fire right in front of them who leads them out into the desert where they build the tabernacle and they put the Ark of the Covenant there and God's presence literally comes and dwells among them. He sets them free from slavery so they can go and be in his presence. And God used Moses because God likes to work through a, a cooperative human agent. And in, in Matthew's Gospel, which you read alongside Exodus, maybe you picked up on this or not, but but. Matthew was writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. And he very deliberately portrays Jesus as the new Moses. This time, Jesus is, is the cooperative human agent that God's going to use. The difference is God has become human so that now the job can be done perfectly. And just as, as in the Passover, the Israelites are set free from from literal slavery out into freedom where they can be with God. Now through Jesus we are set free from the slavery of sin and death. And, and most importantly, there is that story in, in Matthew's Gospel and others where as Jesus dies on the cross, the veil in the temple is torn in two. The veil that separated the safe part of the temple from the Holy of Holies where God was. Because God's presence has broken out of the temple. Jesus dies on the cross so that now we can be in God's presence wherever we are. I said before, there is a, there is a real sense that because we are given authority by God as his image bearers in the world, when, when we commit idolatry, which all sin is some form of idolatry, we're, we're really turning our worship to something else. And when we worship these idols, we are actually handing over our God-given authority and creation over to these idols, whatever they may be. And there is the sense in Scripture that prior to the crucifixion, actually, the world is, is under these, the power of, of all of these idols that they have created and worshipped. And you'll see it, uh, well, if you come to my Bible study on Wednesday night, we'll talk about it more. But you'll, you'll see it as they make the golden calf and how, that, how astonishing that story is. They're under the power of these idols. And what Jesus does on the cross is Passover, but magnified. Not just God breaking the power of one human kingdom, but God breaking the sinful powers that have held the world in slavery. And he frees each and every one of us to stand in the presence of God no matter where we are. 
in just a few moments we'll celebrate Holy Communion, which is itself, by the way, a, a sort of taken out of the Passover story because it's, it comes to us from the Last Supper when Jesus and his disciples were celebrating the Seder dinner as part of their Passover celebration. It's quite a bit stripped down, but it comes to us from that tradition. And what the church has taught in one way or another consistently for 2,000 years is that when we celebrate communion, God is present here with us in a way that he doesn't show up otherwise. We call it a, a, a sacrament or one of the means of grace. We believe that God's grace is poured into us through communion and baptism in ways that he doesn't do elsewhere. And we refer to them as mysteries because we don't really know how that works or why God works in that way. We simply know that this seems to be how God has chosen to work. So when we celebrate communion, we are entering into the presence of God and receiving the grace of God in a way that doesn't otherwise happen. But in a sense, that's what Passover is all about. And that then becomes what the crucifixion and the resurrection are all about. Being freed from the power of sin and death. Not not just to do whatever we want, but specifically so that we can be in the presence of God. And so I would invite you as we celebrate communion in a few moments, as you take the elements, to, to simply reflect on that. That you are right now in the presence of the Almighty God. That he has bought your freedom. He has broken the power of slavery over you. And you are now free to stand in his presence at all times and in all places. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.